Let's turn together to our passage before us today, Genesis 26. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, This is what you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that he that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then he dug another well. And they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. 
You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beri the Hittite to be his wife, and Basimath the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, take your word now. Open it before our eyes. Teach us, instruct us, fill us with all truth. Lord, you've said to ask you for wisdom, that you freely give give wisdom without finding fault. We come to you now, Lord, asking you for wisdom, that you would illumine our hearts, that you would instruct us, that you would show us your glory, your might, your goodness, and your power through your word. Make your word effective in our lives, Lord. Use it not only to instruct our minds, but transform us, Lord, that we wouldn't be the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see a number of similarities in this text, chapter 26, in the life of Isaac, from what we've already seen in the life of Abraham. Things that are familiar, things that sound as if they are the same. There's the famine. We remember the life of Abraham. He went through the famine as well. He did go down to Egypt. There was that lure, that same attraction in, for both men. Uh, Egypt had the Nile River, and so it was abundant uh, for water, but also for watering plants. So they always had plenty of food. And in that time in history, that was, from a human perspective, the logical thing to do. So there was the lure of Egypt as well, not only for Abraham, but also for Isaac. We see the, the, the dispute over well water uh, with the locals. That was something that Abraham experienced. Now Isaac does as well. See similarities about the line uh, about Sarah and Rebekah. Each of these men, father and son, both tried the same thing. And the same, uh, the, the subsequent confrontation of the king in both instances. Now the, the, the scenarios were a little different. But in each in each case, the king came to each of these men, why have you done this? Why have you opened us up to guilt? And so we see some similar experiences in the life of both Abraham and Isaac. We also see, similarly, the promises of God repeated and reiterated and now applied to Isaac in this passage as well. The, the blessing, the, the multiplication of the offspring, the giving of the land, these things are here repeated and applied now to Isaac. One particular promise that is given, and there we see two appearances of God, what we call a theophany in chapter 26, where God appears before Isaac. In both of these appearances, God gives, uh, he repeats a promise, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's a promise that we see given to Abraham, now to Isaac. We see it throughout Scripture. It is a promise that we're given, all believers are given, that God will be with us, that He'll never leave us or forsake us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it's a, it is a promise that we hold dearly. Some call this the Emmanuel principle. 
The Emmanuel principle from the name of God, Emmanuel, God with us. It was the name Isaiah attributed to Jesus before he was born in that prophecy that God would come and dwell with us and be with us. And so it's a promise that if you think of all of the promises of God and and whatever difficulties that you're facing in life, the promises of God are precious to us. But they become much more precious, meaningful, and personal when we realize that he has not a God who is far off and gives these promises, but a God who is near. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. He is present in our lives, and nothing can separate us from that. This is particularly helpful to us, not just when we're facing difficulty, but when we doubt. When we doubt that we come back to the times where we have witnessed and experienced tremendously the, the truth that God is with us. We don't always feel it. Let's, let's be honest. We don't always feel like God is with us. It doesn't change the truth that He is. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. I can say to you with the utmost authority, God will never leave you or forsake you. That's not my opinion. That is His word to us, and I trust it completely. But there are times that I don't feel it. And so we struggle in those times of doubt. And this is where it becomes especially meaningful to us, that we return to those times, those moments in our lives, and we remember that God is with us. One such experience for me came many years ago when I was, uh, I was 19. And so I was, uh, I was in the Navy, and I found myself engaged to a young lady now, I say that I didn't find it. It happened. I proposed and I got myself engaged, as you might imagine. And I'm not putting any kind of magic age of that, that you have to be to get married. But for me at 19, I was not ready. My family knew this. Those who loved me and knew me most dearly, uh, they knew this. They saw it. They tried lovingly to help me in that regard. But there I was in those early, that first year in the Navy, and I was engaged. When I'd first gone in, first thing you do in the military, go to boot camp, I came to the realization very early on, the first week, that no one cared or was impressed that I was a Christian. And I had, I remember very clearly thinking, I either need to embrace Christ completely or just set all this aside and live for myself. What I didn't realize at the time, but I now realize, is that God was protecting me and preserving me and working in my heart for me to make my faith my own. Now, we use that phrase, make your faith your own, that you wouldn't be dependent on the faith of another, particularly parents, what you grew up with. When you when you grow up, you make your faith your own. You, you own it for yourself. But we know better than that. I wasn't making my faith my own. I look back, there wasn't, I didn't have any special, it was totally the grace of God. I know many people who went off the rails, who went off the deep end. I look back and I marvel at how the Lord protected me in that time and through the years that followed. And so by God's grace, I embraced Christ wholly. And so each night, I read my Bible. It was a source of great strength. I had a small New Testament. 
And there wasn't much room to, you had a little personal box that you could put things in. If it didn't fit in there, you had to mail it home. So everything went home except for the small Bible that had been given to me, and I read it every night. People saw me reading my Bible, and guess what? Something about a foxhole, something about desperation, boot camp, everybody gets hungry for God. And so people wanted me to read the Bible to them. And so I began doing that, and the group grew, and I realized I needed... Uh, help. I needed some assistance to make it into kind of a Bible study. Well, one of the things that had given me a lot of strength during this time was the music of, a, of, a, of an artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. I knew a lot of his songs and I sang them in my head, particularly when I was going through the obstacle course or running or marching. There was one song in particular, His Strength is Perfect, When Our Strength is Gone, He Carries Us When We Can't Carry On. Raised in His Power, The Weak Becomes Strong, His Strength is Perfect. And so I had asked, I don't know if you remember, we used to have tapes and CDs, remember those days? Well, they had liners in them and the lyrics were on them. And so I had asked for those to be photocopied and mailed to me because I could fold them up and put them in my personal drawer and that way I could recount the lyrics. When I got them, what I realized is that Stephen Curtis Chapman put the scripture references that inspired him when he wrote the song. So the scripture references were connected with the content of the song. And what I learned was it made a ready, a ready Bible study. When you had no time to prepare, you had five minutes before lights out, and you needed to, to do something, I could take the theme or the content of the song, read those scriptures that were listed there with the lyrics, and I had kind of an impromptu Bible study. And so that was what happened each and every night. Needless to say, I was at, at, I'm still grateful to this day, but at that point in my life, I was deeply grateful for his music. So appreciative. Well, a few months later, as I mentioned, I became engaged, uh, prepared to move to my first duty station. We registered, people celebrated, a lot of people knew. We had uh, our friend groups, uh, people were happy uh, for the most part. And I knew deep in my heart that something wasn't right. It wasn't just because those who loved me and knew me most dearly thought something wasn't right. I knew something wasn't right. I had a lot of questions. And so the night before I left to move to Hawaii, I realized, and there's more to the stories you might imagine, but the Lord brought some people in at the last minute, helped me to see. And so I made the decision to break off the engagement. I realize I'm the bad guy in every Hallmark movie at this point, right? I break the engagement off and I leave town. It was abrupt. It was painful. And I, I, I woke up the next morning and I thought, I didn't know if I'd made the worst mistake in my life or not, but I was in such a deep depression it was, I just, I, I, I didn't know if anyone would ever love me again. I didn't know if I would ever find anyone. I didn't know what friends and family would think. It was going to be embarrassing when the news got out. I, I was, I was ashamed, embarrassed, grieving, sad, all of these things, just depressed. And here I had to fly uh, some 4,000, 5,000 miles. I had a layover in Chicago on my way there. And that was all of all my trips back and forth to Hawaii when I lived there. That was the only time I ever flew through Chicago. Every other time, I either had a nonstop from Atlanta or I flew through a more logical, directional place. Chicago's out of the way. Uh, it, was, uh, it was extra time and, and distance to go up and come back. But that was the way I was rooted. And when I got to Chicago, I was just, again, just in a mess. And I went to the place, my favorite place of solace, and found my comfort in the drink beverage of my choice, Starbucks, and there ordered my coffee. 
And as I was ordering my coffee, I, there was a group of guys that were having a good time. They were loud, carrying on over in one corner. And so I took my coffee and I sat as far away from them as I could. And uh, I sat and I drank my coffee. And when the group of guys got up to leave, I looked at them and immediately recognized Stephen Curtis Chapman. And so I called out, uh, Mr. Chapman. <laughs> I didn't, do you call him Steve? Do you call him Stephen? Stephen Curtis? Uh, Mr. Chapman. And he came over and I immediately began telling him about the impact of his music in my life and how grateful I was for that. And he was very gracious and listening and so forth. And before long, I was just spilling my guts about what I had been through the night before. And so he stopped and he said, can I pray for you? And there in what was at the time the world's busiest airport, uh, he prayed. It wasn't a God bless this guy kind of prayer. I mean, he had listened. He was specific. And it was a, a prayer that was filled with mercy. And he prayed for me. And we went our separate ways. I then had an eight-hour flight to ponder what I had just experienced. And what I realized in those hours, and really in the days and weeks ahead, was that God had done something very tremendous. He could have sent Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, I mean, fill in the blank. And it would not have had the impact at that point in my life, that that period in history of all that has had happened in my life, there's, I can't think of another person that would have encouraged me more in that moment. And God put that person in my path. And I realized God was with me. That was 27 years ago. And I can tell you that it has become one of my Ebenezers. It is what I have gone to when I have doubted. When I've doubted the goodness of God. When I've doubted that God loved me. When I've even doubted God himself. I have gone back to that. There is no human explanation. There is no mathematical formula. You could never convince me that anything other than in that experience, that anything other than God himself was at work. So many details converged in that moment for God to demonstrate to me, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's the Emmanuel principle. And the promise that God reiterates to Isaac here in chapter 26, that he will be with Isaac, that nothing could separate him from his love. Not powerful kings, not clans fighting over water, not wars, not famines, not even Isaac's own lies and sins could separate him from God's love. This is the principle of faith that Isaac needed, and he needed to make it his own. He needed to own it himself. He needed to believe it himself. And so we see and understand that that for Isaac, he needed to go through his own experiences. God lovingly and providentially led him through these things so that he would see not only the power and glory of God, but the presence and the love of God. And we, as children of Abraham, that's what Galatians 3, 7 tells us that we are, that by faith we're children of Abraham. We are benefactors of the promises of God, that he will never leave us, never forsake us. And so our desire is not only that we get this, but that we want to see the next generation. As it transferred from Abraham to Isaac, we too long for the next generation to know and to believe and for their faith to be their own, that they would know this God who is with them, who will never leave them or forsake them. 
as we look in, in the first section, verses 1 to 5, again, it's a familiar situation, famine in the land of Canaan. If you've ever seen pictures or have been there, you know that it's, it's, it's understandable. It's an arid land. There's not a lot of water, not, not many water sources. And so a famine can, can occur very easily. It has already, and it does so again. And this is problematic for all the people, but it's especially problematic for the sojourner. Isaac was a sojourner. He wasn't a citizen. Uh, Abraham had made some progress in terms of, you know, he had bought the one piece of land where he and Sarah were buried, but they still, they didn't, they weren't, they weren't from around there. You know, it takes a long time. If you've ever moved to a, a small town or an area that's tight knit and have realized uh, it can take generations to work your way in. We've, we've encountered that in some of the different places we've lived. I remember when I was in Hawaii, the church that I served in there, uh, Pete Anderson, I think he was there over 30 years, maybe close to 40. And, and he told me that even after all that time, he was still uh, an outsider. He, he had never, it just, it, it, you don't just come in in one generation. So this is the same scenario for Isaac. Think of a refugee. Right, we, we encounter difficulties and we know them, but as citizens, we're not even aware of what it's like to not have those connections. That was Isaac's situation. So it was even more difficult for him. So the lure of the Nile, as we talked about earlier, the water, the, the food that it provided, that was logical for him to want to go there. But the Lord appears to Isaac and says, don't. Don't go to, to Egypt. Stay here. Sojourn here. Remain in the land. In verse 3, Yahweh appears to him and tells him this. And this would have required incredible faith on Isaac's part. Because again, everything in human wisdom would say, go. If you think of what we're currently experiencing, if you imagined having been in New York City where the outbreak uh, was particularly focused, and you, if you saw it coming and you, you said, we've got to get out of here, and you packed your bags... And then we're told to stay, right? It would go against all wisdom. No, no, no. This is, this is going to, there's going to be an outbreak here. We're, we got to get out. We got to protect ourselves, our family. We've got to move on. That's what Isaac would have been up against. God not only tells him to remain, but he repeats the promises to him. The promises that he made to Abraham, he now speaks them and applies them to Isaac. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The oath that is established here in this promise has the language of transfer. It's going from Abraham what belonged to him now belongs to Isaac. The multiplication, the land, the blessing, it's all here. But then comes this statement at the end that, that kind of puzzles us a little bit. It says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That sounds more like the language of a contract. That Abraham did his part, so he deserved in return the promises of God's faithfulness. But we know that's not true. We know from Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous or righteousness. And of course, Hebrews. Hebrews is so helpful in expounding the book of Genesis and helping us understand uh, the, our forefathers, that they walked by faith, by faith, it says in Hebrews 11. 
John Calvin is helpful here. He says, Moses does not mean that Abraham's obedience was the reason why the promise of God was confirmed and ratified to him. He now commends the obedience of Abraham in order that Isaac may be stimulated to an imitation of his example. This is, this is the equivalent of Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Walk in the way, follow my example. We need to know God doesn't love us because we obey him. But because he loves us, we do desire to obey him. Law and promise are not in conflict. They're not at odds here. But another thing that is a little interesting about this is the synonyms for law that Moses kind of stacks up here. Uh, Abraham obeyed my voice. He kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It sounds to me over the top. Like Really? We know Abraham. I mean, all of that? That just sounds kind of hard to attribute that to Abraham even though he is the father of our faith. And so it's, it's puzzling that Moses does this here. And yet when we look forward, you think about it, the, the, the law of Moses had not even been revealed. So when God gave the law to Moses, this was all after the fact. So how was Abraham able to do all of this? Well, as I read this, not only do I, 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 can, I can believe that Abraham could do it, uh, I can I can forgive him. What I can't believe is that I could ever measure up. When I read these kind of passages, I look and I think, I, I, I don't meet the qualification. How can I ever measure up? I don't know if you think the same way, but let me encourage you. We can't. And Abraham didn't in his own strength or power. He didn't, according to his actions, measure up. Even though it says that he did. How do we fit all this together? Well, again, we go back to, to, to Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And again, I mentioned Hebrews 11, but if you look and you can, you can look at this later, but, but I'll just give you a couple examples. As each person is mentioned in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews there prefaces it that by faith they did this. So in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. See, the emphasis is not, the emphasis is on their faith. And, and, and you don't have to think long and hard about this to realize it's not them doing it because they're doing it in faith. It's the object of their faith that supplies the power that gets the glory. It's God who has been doing this all along. They have simply been walking by faith, trusting him. And the faith, the by faiths, the by faith Abraham, the by faith Sarah, it continues. By faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, all the way down through the hall of faith that we call that chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. So the just shall live by faith. So when we see these stacked synonyms and we think, how could I ever measure up? You can't. But praise God that Christ came and did He measured up for us. That's the gospel. Christ did what we could not do. He met the righteous requirement of the law that we never could. And then he credits us with that. So that now we get the same track record that Abraham does. That we've kept the law, the commandments, the statutes, the words. That gets attributed to us because of Christ's imputed 
righteousness, and we thank God for that. The just shall live by faith. That's a phrase that actually comes from Habakkuk 2.4. We know it more, uh, remember it more from passages like Romans 1 or Galatians 3 or Hebrews 10 where it's repeated. But this is how Abraham lived. He lived by faith. It's how Isaac would live, how Jacob would live, how Joseph would live, how Moses and David and Ruth and, and Esther and all of those who have walked by faith, they were trusting in the one who could save them not in themselves, not in their righteous deeds. And just as they were trusting in that someone else to keep the law perfectly, we trust in the one who did keep the law perfectly. On this side of the cross, they looked forward, we looked back, but our object of faith is the same. And so when we look at a passage then like Psalm 24, in verse 3 and following, we read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has a clean, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who among us has clean hands and a pure heart? Who? None of us. None of us have clean hands hands, and a pure heart. So then who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It says only that, the one that has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, thankfully, there is one who did have clean hands and a pure heart, and he did ascend the hill of the Lord on our behalf. And because Jesus did that, he wrought the blessing of salvation for you and for me that is now ours by faith, just as it was for Abraham and just as it was for Isaac. And so may we then be the generation who seeks the face of the God of Jacob so that we can tell it then to the next generation that they too would seek the face of Jesus in faith and would know the blessings of His righteousness, His perfectly obeying the voice of His Father. Jesus kept his charge, kept his commandments, kept his statutes and his laws perfectly for you and for me that we would know this tremendous blessing, this great salvation that's ours. Well, in the next section, as we move on to verse six, we again see more familiar episodes. We see where Isaac lies about Rebecca being his wife. We see the encounters uh, around the wells, the Isaac's honored by this pagan king Abimelech like his father was. We see God bless Isaac with abundance, so many similar things. I want to point out that there are some who would say and have, have argued that they typically the people who do this have a very low view of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. But there are those who say it sounds too familiar that this is not true history, that the writer was just meshing up things from the past and applying them to different characters, but the stories are too similar. But if you notice in the text, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that these are different instances. For example, in verse 1, he talks about the famine, but then he recalls the previous famine to distinguish between the two. This is not the same famine. There was one under Abraham's day. Now we're under a new famine, in a sense, is what Moses is saying. We see in the account of Rebekah, compared to the account of Sarah, there are similar similarities in that both men fell to the fear of man, the temptation to the fear of man. 
But the situations with the wives was different. Uh, there wasn't, frankly, as much drama with Rebecca as there was with Sarah. She wasn't taken away. We see the story about the wells that were dug, and they're attributed to the same names. But that isn't because it's the same piece of history that's being meshed together. Rather, we're told the wells have been filled with dirt. This was part of the, the contention that arose. The servants uh, uh, of Abimelech had gone and filled them with dirt. So this is not a mistake of history that is simply being repeated for the next generation. This is, is again, the providential care of a loving Heavenly Father taking Isaac through some of the same lessons so that he would learn and trust his Heavenly Father in the same way that his earthly father had And Isaac does learn and grow, just as his father did. But it's important to remember that even when, and not only with with Isaac and with Abraham, but with others in Genesis that we've already seen, and and frankly with, with others through the rest of Scripture, that spiritual growth is not linear. There may be periods of our spiritual growth that looks like a line. You know, we're going up the graph like this. But most of us, when we share our testimony, what does it look like if we graft it out? It's all over the place, isn't it? It's circuitous. It's it, Why does God do this? Why doesn't God take us just straight up on a plane, in a sense, in spiritual growth? Well, part of the reason is that God wants to show us His power. That it's not our earning His salvation. We're not getting better and better and therefore earning His salvation, earning His grace. Grace isn't earned by definition. But rather, it is His power at work in our lives that even though we at times fall away, even though we sin, you, you, you think of stories like David. You know, David, a man after God's own heart, picked, fought Goliath, did all these tremendous things, wrote the Psalms, we read them, and and yet his tremendous sin, both in the adultery with Bathsheba as well as the, the murder of Uriah. And you think, how could he? Well, how could any of us? And so our spiritual growth is typically not in a straight line. And God does this to show his power. But he also does this to show his faithfulness and his love. By not putting us on a one-way flight to our destination, sometimes he takes us through Chicago O'Hare for a layover because he has something very important to teach us there. And so when life comes at you with unexpected things, this is why we, we herald the sovereignty of God, that we trust God's providential hand in our lives, that we know that even when the surprises come, he's still at work. He's still doing his will and we can trust him. Well, another similarity, Rebecca is beautiful just like her mother-in-law. And because of that, Isaac falls to the fear of man. Isaac has witnessed God's incredible... I mean, Isaac was strapped to the altar when his father was called to sacrifice him, the firstborn. And Isaac witnessed God's hand of protection and then provision in the ram. And we might think to ourselves, Isaac should never doubt God again. But let's not beat up on Isaac too much here. Because you and I, we may not have had the experience on the altar, but we have the whole of Scripture that our forefathers in the faith didn't have. We have the whole of Scripture all of the recorded accounts of God at work, as well as the instruction to us. So we, and, and, and we struggle. So we can, we can give Isaac some slack here. 
And God, of course, is merciful to him. What happens? Well, through a clear act of providence, Abimelech realizes that Rebekah is not Isaac's sister. We're not given details, but it doesn't take much of our imagination to understand that while it's described that they were laughing, it was a form of laughter that was enough to indicate to Abimelech that this isn't a brother and sister that I'm looking at. Abimelech just happens to look out the window one day and see this. It's interesting, the word for laughing as you might imagine, well, it's Isaac's name, right? His name means laughter. So here's another irony, another play on words. And just as the same word is used to describe Ishmael, and when, when Sarah saw Ishmael, she knew that his laughter was actually mocking Isaac. In the same way, whatever Abimelech witnessed in terms of how they were laughing with one another, he knew that it was the laughter uh, and the affection that was shared between a husband and a wife. And so right away he knows and he calls Isaac in and he confronts him. And the outcome of this confrontation is not what I would imagine. I would think that Abimelech would be so upset, like the, like the previous king. I mentioned Abimelech, the previous king. He had the name Abimelech as well. I would like to point out that Abimelech is also a title, and a lot of these names in Scripture are titles. It's possible that it's the same person. There were 60 to 80 years between these two episodes, so it could be the same Abimelech, but it's likely a different one, and this was just a title. But either way, uh, this was this, a similar experience. And you would think that when Abimelech you know, sees the dishonesty, and he calls him out on it and says, you know, you risk bringing guilt on us. There was, there was a potential here for, for great uh, dishonor, great shame. You would think he would say, just leave, get out of here. But he doesn't. He issues an edict that protects Isaac and Rebekah, which is clearly a provision from God, a providential act of care in protecting Isaac and Rebekah. Now, later, Abimelech would ask them to leave, but it didn't have anything to do with this situation. Some time passed, and Isaac became very uh, successful. He became wealthy, and as Abimelech says, he became powerful. He says, you're too powerful for us when he tells him to go away. What's incredible is that we think of the experience of the famine and how difficult that would have made it for Isaac to become successful in agricultural terms. And this is is where his success was found, both in the planting as well in, in livestock. But there's two things that I want us to consider very briefly about prosperity here. One is that with prosperity comes difficulty. We like to think that money would make all of our problems go away, that just a little bit more would just remove this. It would take care of that. I could pay for this. I could do that. It would make all of my problems go away. But not only from this account, we've seen this already in Genesis, and we see this throughout other passages of Scripture, and we see it through history, and we probably have our own stories that we could tell where Prosperity brings with it its own set of problems. It brings with it its own complications. And so we need to know that our longing for our problems to go away will never be fulfilled in money. Money will not bring shalom. Only Jesus will bring perfect shalom. And only when he puts everything right, when we know that perfect shalom in heaven. Right now we see through glass dimly. We struggle to believe But there is a day coming when we will see, not just in part, but in full, and we will know a contentment that is beyond our understanding at this point in our lives. We can't even imagine how glorious our contentment will be in Jesus 
and in Him alone will we be satisfied. The other thing I want us to consider is that material prosperity doesn't necessarily indicate God's blessing. There are those who teach this. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's unfortunately like the coronavirus. It has spread. And, and, and where it often spreads is among the poor. It spreads among the poor because it gives them a false sense of hope that if they just have enough faith that God will bless them with money and that God will make them healthy. But neither of those promises are given in Scripture to us in this life. Those promises are given to us in the life to come. Because in the life to come, all of our needs will be met. Our bodies will be resurrected bodies. We will no longer, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more uh, hurt or pain or suffering. That day is coming, but it's not promised to us in this life. In fact, we're promised that we will suffer for the name of Christ. And so the prosperity gospel is not a gospel at all. It's not good news at all. It's a false gospel. It's a lie. It's a heresy. It's something that should be shunned. And I discourage you from watching those who purport those ideas because I'm telling you, they, they use the words and they miss and they twist the words and they will lure you in. And of course, guess what? Because that's what they preach. They have to live a good example, don't they? And so they have their own stash of cars and mansions and private jets to lead by example. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And it is a tool of Satan to deceive many. The prosperity gospel is not truth. It is no gospel at all. It is false. So when we look at prosperity, we cannot equate it to God's blessing. It could be God's blessing. And in this case, it is God's blessing. But it's not just simply to make Isaac rich. God blessed Isaac in this situation to show his power over nature. That even when nature demonstrated, and I use nature in the sense like it has some kind of power, nature is, we, we see it as having power, but God rules over all. So this is at God's hand. That, but that from a human perspective, that even looking at the power of nature in this famine, that God overcame that in the life of Isaac and he blessed him tremendously. But it was to show his power. And not just in Isaac's life so he would believe the promises and trust God more, which of course was effective to that end, but so others would see and trust God. And we see that happen later on when Abimelech comes to him and says, clearly God is with you. So that is why God is blessing Isaac here. But we need to be careful that we don't equate the uh, blessing of prosperity uh, with uh, or equating prosperity with blessing rather from the hand of God. Let me encourage you, whether you're thinking about prosperity or whether you're thinking about even things that we're blessed with in this country that not all Christians know, like the blessings of freedom, the, the, the fact that we live in a democratic society, those aren't guaranteed to us by Scripture. And there are many of our brothers and sisters, I would even argue that there are more of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor compared to us. If 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day, and that's the last figure I was able to find, it's relatively recent, a few years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. That makes all of us wealthy by definition. All of us would be comparatively wealthy. And you cannot say to me, but certainly not to them and certainly not before God, that those brothers and sisters are less blessed in Christ. 
that they have received less of Christ's blessing because they're poor. So be careful when you equate the blessings that we do know, and we can call them blessings and we can thank God for them, whether it's the blessing of our freedom or the blessing of the abundance that He's provided with, even though comparatively we may look around in our neighborhood and think uh, we're we're the poorest or something, but compared to most of the world, we're not. We're all wealthy. And we can thank God for those things, but don't equate that as if we're more blessed in Christ than our brothers and sisters who are poor. The blessing that is ours in Christ, the preeminent blessing, we think of our salvation, certainly that's that, but the preeminent blessing is God Himself. That God gives us Himself. It is the Emmanuel principle. That God will dwell with His people. That He will be their God and they will be His people and worship Him. And so God gives us Himself and that is the blessing that is ours and all of our brothers and sisters, not just around the world at this time, but throughout history. The blessing of God Himself. Well, we see that testimony shine not only in Isaac's life, but now through Isaac's life to Abimelech when in verse 28 he comes and says, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. The testimony of Isaac's faith, the testimony of Isaac walking with God and believing him. He didn't do everything right. We know he didn't do everything right. He wasn't a perfect person, but that he trusted a God who is perfect. He he believed in God and that belief, that faith is credited to him as righteousness. That righteousness, that faith uh, that, that's, that's given to him becomes a testimony of light. And so now the unbelievers begin to see it and they come and they testify to it. That's the Emmanuel principle. It's here right before us in Genesis 26 today. Look in verse 28. God has been with you, past tense. Look up in verse 24. Fear not, for I am with you. Present tense. Up in verse 3, I will be with you and will bless you. Future tense. Past, present, and future. Our God has promised to be with us and He is faithful and good and loving to do so. That is incredibly... All of God's promises are incredibly encouraging to us. But they become so much more so because of the, the, the that He is personally present with each and every one of us. That the benefits are not just... Ours collectively, but they're ours personally as well. We see, I mentioned the passage in Isaiah already. It's, it, it's by definition who God is. When Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. It means God with us. By definition, it's who God is. It's His character that He is with us. He's promised to be with us. The Psalms are filled with it. We, we read a Psalm this morning. We, we, I could rem- There's so many that I could read here and quote that you would remember, that you would recognize uh, where this promise of, of God to be with us is found. But there's probably no better example that we all know than Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You are with me. God's promise to be with us. The Old Testament, uh, the, the, the history literature, the, the prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, they're all filled with this pro- promise. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And of course, we also think of the words of Jesus before He departed when He said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Know this, realize this, and trust this today, that God's blessing to you is Himself, that He is with you. No matter what you're facing today, 
that no, no matter what tomorrow holds that we don't even know about, He will never leave us or forsake us. Take to heart what we read in Romans 8.32, that He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All of our longings will be met perfectly in Christ. We will be satisfied. We will know a contentment beyond our imagination in Christ. But in this life, while we continue to war and to struggle against injustice and against discontentment, against physical suffering, possibly against even persecution, danger, harm, we know that we are not alone. Those who are in Christ are held by Him and He is with them. So trust Him and know that He is with you in all things. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we long to see that truth not only drilled down deeply into our hearts, but that it would become a testimony as it was in Isaac's life, that the next generation would see and believe that they would glorify our Father in heaven. And so would you strengthen us in the knowledge and truth that you are with us, that we can not only face what we're dealing with today, but we can even face the unknown of tomorrow and whatever comes our way, that you will not leave us and that you will walk with us and that you will carry us through. That other passage in Isaiah that comes to our minds that will go through the river, that will go through the fire. We won't be burned. We won't drown. You'll protect us. You'll carry us. You'll preserve us. Until that day when we know in full what we now only know in part and all of our longings are met and fulfilled in Christ. Lord, we long for that day. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, may we be satisfied completely in you and may we trust you in all matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.